change some colors, add a second checkout button above the product, not just down below, you know, whatever it might be, and go watch your analytics. And did you increase things? Mm -hmm. Great, keep it live. Did things stay flat? Great, keep it live. Mm -hmm. Did you negatively impact things? Okay, maybe go back and, and take that out, right? And see if that thing that you did was the actual cause of the negative impact. Yeah. If, if you rebound or things stay low or whatever, maybe it wasn't, right? Like you can go lo-fi on your science and, and kind of like just, just test and iterate. Welcome to the e-commerce podcast with me, your host, Matt Edmondson. The e-commerce podcast is a podcast all about helping you deliver e-commerce wow. And to help us do just that, I am chatting with today's guest, Matt Ranter from Nimble Gravity about how to navigate the complexities of generative content and copyright. A bit of a hot topic right now. But before Matt and I dive into our conversation, let me share with you a podcast pick, a previous episode that I think you're going to enjoy around this whole topic. Uh, very recently, I chatted to Max Sinclair about the possibilities of generative AI. Do check out that episode. You can access our podcast pick and our entire podcast archive on your free, on our, not your free website, my free website, uh, ecommercepodcast.net. Plus, if you sign up to our newsletter, you will have all this information winging its way to you. Uh, the podcast pick, the notes, the links from today's show, they all get sent straight to you, to your inbox at no cost to you, which is pretty amazing. So if you haven't signed up to the newsletter yet, what are you waiting for? Head over to ecommercepodcast.net net and join us now talking of matt sinclair max sinclair was recently on the e-commerce cohort which you would have heard me talk about if you're a regular to the show basically the e-commerce cohort is, a, is something that we do it's a it's a monthly mastermind a monthly membership a monthly it's just a monthly group where we all get together and think about e-commerce. And uh, yeah, it's called the e-commerce cohort. And to help businesses like yourself deliver exceptional customer experiences, um, we've got a course for you, a free course, a free resource that you can take, it doesn't take long, uh, called e-commerce cycles. It's a mini course, it walks you through my proven framework for building a successful e-commerce business. I'm gonna show you the specific steps we take as a team in our own e-commerce companies so you can see exactly how to put these concepts into practice in your own business. And like I say, the good news is it is completely free uh, and you can find out more information about that at ecommercecycles.com that's ecommercecycles.com which is brought to you by our monthly mastermind e-commerce cohort which of course is today's show sponsor now that's the show sponsor let's talk about our guest matt rentner uh, who is a digital dynamo which i just Matt, I don't know, it just sounds like an awesome title to me. He's the head of practice at Nimble Gravity, revolutionizes digital transformation, e-commerce and strategy for clients ranging from startups to billion dollar giants. Oh, we've got the billion dollar giants in there, oh yes. Uh, tackling diverse industries like healthcare, DTC clothing and endangered species, which is just awesome. Uh, Max expertise propels businesses into the future with data science, a great term which those guys have called 
coined and explained very well on their website. Uh, they do cutting edge e-commerce. Uh, his team at Nimble Gravity, they sort of redefine success by transforming the way organizations operate and excel. So great bio that, Matt, great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us, man, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the show, Matt. I really appreciate it. Great name, by the way, and looking forward to a fun conversation. <laughs> it's funny. You can't see my diary, but um, we did, if you've not figured it out yet, listener, we, 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 uh, we batch record. So we record like two episodes at a time just so we can uh, stay on top of things. And our next yeah. guest is also called Matt, but he's just had to reschedule. And I was like, this is, this is the easiest day in the world for me. I don't have to remember anybody's name. I'm just going to call everybody Matt. And it's awesome. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a beautiful name too, uh, absolutely beautiful yeah. name. You know what, this is not related to e-commerce, Matt, in any way, but last weekend, a friend of mine called Rich Rising was over from Dallas. I was celebrating quite a milestone birthday and bless him, he flew in from Dallas. And uh, we had a, a big, he was, just, he was here for just like three or four days. I mean, a hell of a way to fly just for three or four days. And we happened to go watch an England football game and oh, they were playing near where my mum lives. And so I didn't see my mum on my birthday. So I said to Rich, I said, let's just go to my mum's house and pop in and say hello. And he said, oh, that'd be great. So we went over to my mum's house and Rich said to my mum, he asked her the question that I've never thought in all my years of living to ask my mum. And that question was this, why Matthew? Why did you name him <laughs> Matthew? And I thought, I just assumed it's because it was like the first book of the New Testament. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I assume that that was probably it, because it definitely wasn't a family name, but I never thought to ask my mum that question. Anyway, it turns out when it wasn't that religious at all. It was all to do with an actor from the 70s called Matthew Hudson, which my mum took quite a shining uh, to. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's funny. So that's, uh, do you know why you're called Matt? Uh, I, I don't, uh, exactly. I do know that, um, my mother and father made a deal where if I was a boy, my mom got to pick the name. And if I was going to be a girl, my dad was going to get to pick the name. And I'm very happy to have born, been born a guy, uh, not for any gender based reasons or anything like that, really. But just I didn't want to have the name that my father was going to pick out, which was <laughs> Ursula. <laughs> <laughs> okay so yeah that that's um matt is definitely it, is matt calling every all the ursulas listening to the show going to go hang on a minute wait uh, a second know, yeah yeah i know some lovely ursulas actually especially in the digital industry so ursulas if you're listening uh we do love you um but matt is a very cool name so you should you should ask your mum go mum listen where did the name matthew come from and then just let me know the answer because now i'm really intrigued why matthews are called matthew um, and it maybe it's uh, it's worth finding out. So <laughs> let's talk about generative AI um, because it is a topic which is blowing up. It has been blowing up for quite a while. Uh, I say quite yeah. a while in digital terms. It's it, we've been talking about it for more than a few weeks, so it's, it feels like quite a while, right? Um, so generative AI, things like ChatGPT. Um, and so on and so forth. So how, what's your experience here, Matt? How did you get involved with all of this? Yeah, same exact thing, right? Like it's been inescapable since probably December-ish or so, right? Yeah. Uh, but we as a, as a group have been involved with, um, you know, OpenAI's uh, GPT model since GPT-2. Okay. And have been actually trying to help folks create 
usable um, generative AI products from a standpoint of doing things like SEO work. Can okay. you go in and have it create a, a huge number of SEO friendly content based products that surround your business? And at that point in time, it wasn't really capable of outputting much. You know, we kind of got some funny results, to be quite honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, at this point in time, really, you can go in and say if you had a sister website, right, and you wanted to rewrite content from your main primary site over to your second site where you were just trying to grab market share with a secondary brand, but you're selling essentially the same things, you could go through and utilizing the APIs rather than just the you know graphic user interface, yeah. utilizing the APIs, you could put massive amounts of content into the engine, have it rewritten and output in a safe way, uh, as long as you're using good prompts, right? I think right. That, that's a big key is the, the prompt kind of side of things. And we're seeing this topic explode not only from a written content standpoint, but there are literally thousands and thousands of tools at this point, and they do everything from product photography to background imagery to ad campaigns to, to you name it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think businesses who aren't starting to capitalize on this are going to quickly see themselves left behind because it's like nitrous for a car, right? Like a business yeah. can start utilizing generative AI tools and accelerate their growth, accelerate their productivity and do so unbelievably fast and with high, high aptitude. Yeah. So, you mentioned this. I'm just writing notes, uh, Matt. Hence the uh, hence the scribbling sounds in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you talk about using um, AI to accelerate growth. How would you? I mean, just from a pure practical sense, if I'm I'm an e-commerce entrepreneur, I'm listening to it. AI is something that is becoming more, bigger and bigger, more and more in my face. Right, I can't escape it. Yeah. So they were sitting there listening to you saying, "Well, you can use AI to accelerate growth." How how could an e-commerce entrepreneur use AI to accelerate growth? What are some of the, th the key things that they could do which is really going to help them? Well, sure. I'll give you a couple of, of more concrete examples in, the, in that scenario, right? Say, say you have to write blogs or articles um, mm -hmm. for, for your product. And this is something that from a content perspective, you should be doing anyway. That process probably, say you're a small business owner, right? That's an overwhelming process sometimes, right? I, mm -hmm. I have to give up hours of time to be able to sit down and write an article or a blog and rewrite it and or I have to hire somebody and pay them you know, it, a large wage in order to do that on my behalf. And now what you instead need to do is be able to write a short prompt uh, that describes how you want something written. Uh, imagine you are an expert uh, in the fashion industry and you're talking about men's active wear uh, and you're describing uh, the new trends in, um, you know, top layers, whatever, right? And mm -hmm. you go on and describe exactly what you want, almost like a creative brief, right? And then you say, please generate a 1,000 word article uh, to this. And that will happen in seconds from a platform like ChatGPT or Jarvis.ai or any of the other written mm -hmm. generative content platforms that are out there. 
My recommendation is that you don't just utilize that immediate output. You want to go back and edit it. You want to reprompt mm-hmm. the engine in order to tweak and fix things for you. You might say, no, this tone is too serious. Can you please make it more lighthearted? You might go through as an individual and say, I would never use those words, that turn of phrase, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and put it out. And you've taken a process that takes hours down to taking minutes instead, right? Yeah. Here's another one. Another one would be there are product photography platforms that are out there right now that allow you to take a very small number of photographs of a product. Could be a sporting product, could be something like a basketball, could be a clothing product like a jacket, whatever it might be. Then you can take those images and you can upload them into the AI platform. And instead of going out and doing a photo shoot, uh, with a bunch of models and a long time frame in order to get everybody set up, take the photos, go process them, put them back, go through and pick out which ones you want. You tell the AI platform, hey, put that jacket on a model of this ethnicity in this setting and boom, you've got it, right? Yeah. All of a sudden your jacket is on a, you know, an African-American female in New York City hailing a cab. Yeah. And you didn't have to go do that photo shoot. You didn't have to pay for the photographer, pay for the model, anything like that. You've saved thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours of time. It's interesting, isn't it? That um, uh, I mean, I was talking to um, literally just before we got into this call, actually, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a copywriter. Um, she's bidding for some work and she's like, what do you think I should charge for this? And we we're just sort of going back and forth. And um, she's been out of out of the workforce for a little bit because of kids. So she's now doing, you know, sure. she's coming back part time. And we had this really interesting conversation because when she, when she, because she used to work for me, Beth, when she left, it was a case of Beth wrote everything from scratch. Do you know what I mean? And would spend right. hours researching and thinking about blog posts and, and preparing arguments and thinking about sales funnels and the, the you know, just the layout of the text and, and, and what's the, the route we want to take them down. And I was, I was showing her today how as long as she knows the prompts and can get that information, you know, that prompt written and, and teach chat GPT well, the, the thing is outputted inside of 30 seconds. Yeah. And so, you know, her skill now is not necessarily just in copywriting, it's in prompt writing um, and exactly. getting that copy out and then editing it. Right. But when you um, here's a question for you, Matt, um, we've got this thing now where oh, I'm reading more and more where Google is you go to say chat GPT you say write mm-hmm. me a blog post on men's activewear or whatever it was you, you you talked about so write me that blog post and um, Google is starting to recognize now whether this is AI generated and it feels like um, it's starting to penalize AI generated content. Now, is that just a mere rumor? Is that actually true? And if so, how do we mitigate against that? Well, yes, uh, there are platforms out there. I'm sure Google's policing it. There are things like GPT zero uh, that can be utilized in order to you know put any piece of content in and say, what's the likelihood that this was written with AI and it will come back and tell you, you can go test it, right? Write, write something in chat GPT, go over to GPT zero and see what it tells you, right? Then write something by hand, go over and see what it tells you. And it's amazing that it can even do that. But yes, that is going to happen. And I think, I, I think that 
we as individuals are going to have to get used to one, the fact that some portion of the content we have out there is probably generated by AI at some point Mm. in time. Right. But then we also are going to have to get that mix right of how much should you come back in and edit that and change it and make it unique and and Mm -hmm. touch it up. Because I think the search engines might go, they might over index on a tendency early on to penalize against that. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas businesses are going to probably over index the other way and they need to not right. of like, I'm going to have them do everything. I'm going to have them write Mm -hmm. all my content. Right. Like recently, I think it was maybe even back in November, um, uh, CNET got, penalized and had a bunch of articles called out for having in in factual un, you know incorrect information in them right and it was like 75 articles that oh, they had wow. done as a test uh as to see is is ai good enough to do this and they had to go back and, and recorrect those right that's a process problem that isn't necessarily an ai problem that's you never ha- sat somebody down and had them actually fact sure. check what got put out right so there's probably going to be some mix as we move forward in the future. And I think people need to become probably a little bit more accepting of that because those tools really do allow us to accelerate. And I think that it also would then get fed back into the AI engines and Mm. their intelligence will increase and it will become more unique. And I do think it goes to that prompt writing you were talking about, right? That your your former employee and, and colleague is now really good at. That's the challenge, right? Like, Mm. are you coming in and asking a unique prompt? Are you telling the engine to write something unique that it hasn't written before? Or are you just asking a basic question like, is the sky blue? Give me 10 ideas for a 15-year-old's birthday party, right? Like, don't ask the basic question. Augment it with a lot more information. And Mm. and then you're going to start to get much better content still fact check it, still rewrite it to be a little bit more like yourself. And then you're going to have some kind of mix. It isn't that much different than the, you know, a copywriter and an editor at a magazine or a newspaper, right? Mm. It's a source of intelligence outputting a first draft and it needs to be refined, right? That's the way I would look at it from an SEO perspective. Yeah. Same thing. It's really interesting because I, I, I was, uh, last week I had a, 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 a well-deserved, I would say, Matt, week off, uh, week off work. And I spent the entire week um, either in my woodwork shop or playing around with chat GPT prompts. So the two <laughs> things that I sort of, and um, I've got to deliver some talks um, from the stage coming up. And I'm like, I wonder how, because normally I would spend probably eight to 16 hours prepping, say, a 30 minute talk you know it's there's that kind of uh ratio i'm like how can chat gpt and there are obviously ai platforms out there i mean you mentioned jarvis ai i think it's now called jasper ai because i think wasn't somebody was going to sue them from marvel i'm sure for calling it uh jarvis um and so (laughs) uh, they now call it jasper which we used to use actually before chat gpt4 which we predominantly use now and I was playing around on these prompts and it took my prep time down from for the latest talk that I've written. What would normally take me eight to 12 hours took probably 20 minutes. Um, yes. Just going backwards and forwards. And it just outputted a, ser- a series of data, which I can then go back and I can now edit and change, feed it back into the system and see what it, it comes out with. It's, it's incredible, really, 
what it can do. So I guess one of the questions, and let's let's connect it to the title of the podcast. Uh, I guess yeah. one of the questions in all of this is like, um, the same with the text, same with the image, right? So it's creating blog posts, it's creating product images, which uh, Matt, Max Sinclair's um, stuff does at eContent. And so am I, Am I breaking any copyright laws by using what ChatGPT has put out there? What's the what what usage rights do I have? I suppose is this is this something? Yeah. If I I guess one of the big questions, one of the big debates is if I say um, add this product, my men's activewear, to a to a guy which looks a little bit like Brad Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like an, it, an AI goes and generates a sort of, you know, almost perfect version of, of Brad Pitt. It's all a bit gray, isn't it? Or are there some guidelines in this that we can follow? There's definitively some guidelines that exist in the end user license agreements for the products, right? So that's step one. I, mm. I think that this area from a legal perspective and i'm not a lawyer nobody should take anything i say as legal advice <laughs> right like, yeah but yeah like from a, you know from a legal area this is going to be muddy waters at best for a good while right mm. so here's what i can tell you from like an end user license agreement standpoint and it's kind of you know thought-provoking at a minimum, maybe scary for companies at, at, at a maximum. So we did some research as a company back in February, right? So a lifetime ago in generative AI, really, at this point. But at that point in February, we, we researched and surveyed uh, working professionals in the United States and uh, elsewhere as well, but majority of them were in the United States, and found that of full-time working professionals in the US, 45% of the respondents who were familiar with generative AI, right? If they first had to pass a gating question of, are you familiar with any of these? Mm -hmm. of, of which around 50% of people were. Yeah. And then from there, 45% of those respondents were taking generative AI outputs and claiming them as their own, right? So they weren't saying, I did this with generative AI. Mm -hmm. They were saying, this is my work product. Wow. And okay. in that is a huge challenge, right? So Jasper, uh, in their end user license agreement, spells out very clearly, you may not utilize our content and claim it as being generated by a human. So any of the folks that had done that from Jasper are creating a scenario where they can't copyright that work. They can't actually claim it as their own. If they wrote an article and put a byline on it as wow. you know Matt Ranson mm -hmm. or Matt Edmondson, uh, wrong. You know it's it's not theirs. It doesn't belong to them. If you get into OpenAI's end user license agreement, you'll see some even more interesting things. Kind of where they go is if you output content that is 100% unique. Uh, then you can then you can start to utilize it. Um, mm -hmm. But if you and fifty other people ask it the same question and get the same output, that output is actually public domain. It is not individual, and it cannot be copyrighted and claimed as as your own. So that's where that prompt writing actually becomes even more specialized right. and more critical. Right? If it's unique prompt, if it's completely new and, and of, you know, brand new thought process, 
then that content can start to look and become yours. Mm. I haven't researched the end user license agreement of you know thousands of these AIs, but here's what I here's what I would recommend to people. You've got to go read it, right? You've yeah. got to understand can I actually utilize the output of this as my own? Some of them are very good about calling it out, right? Like if you're buying a logo or something like that that AI has generated, they're very good about saying you have, you know, unrestricted use and perpetuity for this. You're buying it as as your brand mark, right? Yeah. Go ahead and do it. Others are burying it in very, very deep places, right? So I would recommend go read it, go have somebody on your legal team if you're large enough to have one of those read it and understand that deeply. The second thing I would do from just if I were a company running a business where any generative AI could touch it is I would have a policy for my employees, right? And I personally wouldn't make this policy restrictive in the sense of, hey, you can't use generative AI. Mm -hmm. What I would say is you can use generative AI, but we have to know, right? right. Like we as a company have to be aware of what's going on. You can't claim a work product that AI built as your own and then right. have us going out and copywriting it, et cetera, et cetera, right? You're creating challenges for that organization. So you need to have something that acknowledges that AI is here. It's not going away. People are going to use it. People want to be more productive, but you've got to have some level of transparency within your organization that allows you then to make decisions downstream from where that content was generated and how it's being used that people are fully aware and not, you know, setting themselves up for a surprise six or yeah. eight months or a year from now. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. So is that what you guys do at Nimble Gravity? You've got a sort of a policy on, on generative AI usage that your staff follow? Uh, we don't yet, quite frankly. And it's something that we're talking about. Um, and it, it it's something that we utilize um, fairly regularly too, mm -hmm. right? Like that research process that you're talking about where you're where you're going in uh and doing you know prep for a speech or prep for understanding what are the differences between software platforms or anything like that you can do that in chat gpt right mm -hmm. uh you need to go fact check that can you help put together a presentation you bet you can can you put together a blog post sure you can can you put together materials that go inside of uh, a, a client-facing presentation you, you sure could, right? Mm -hmm. But how much do you want to edit that? And so I, I think that we we need to practice what we're preaching for one, uh, and and two, um, it's ever evolving. And so that's one of those things like a privacy policy that you're going to have to go back <laughs> and revisit, right? Like, so okay, GDPR, okay, Brexit, no UK's own thing, uh, yeah. California CPRA, uh, Colorado that I live in now all of a sudden has a policy, right? Like, and they just keep piling on each other and you're going to have to figure this out as a business. So. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, part of me, I'm, I'm sort of sitting here wondering, I wonder if I said to ChatGPT, write me a policy, <laughs> whether it would actually create the policy. It probably would uh, if it I totally. put the right prompts in. Um, one of the things that I found actually with ChatGPT, um, and again, it, I guess it's the same with the other platforms, is if I give it copy of um, copies of or chunks of content that I have previously written in my sort of style, my tone of voice, yeah. It can mimic that quite well when it's output in the content. It can sound quite, quite like me 
um, which minimizes my editing, which I'm assuming will make it a bit more unique because it's it's sort of my do you know what I mean my tone of voice and I can I can exactly. throw that in there which is which is quite handy and it's quite nice because you can do that with brand as well can't you you can throw brand voice in there and brand values and it yep. tends to output it in that way um which I, I quite like so what are some of the the credit I mean you guys are using it at Nimble Gravity um, um, do you use it on behalf of your clients uh, what are some of the surprising ways you've seen I guess uh generative AI being used yeah. So, you know, the example that I called out previously of, you know, rewriting um, SEO friendly content from uh, one site to another uh, is something that, that we've uh, worked with and, and created models around. Uh, and I would say that written generative AI content is probably the largest area right now. Mm. Right. Uh, some of the uh, photography based kind of stuff is still a, a little bit new. Um, mm. we, we don't do graphic design or anything like that. So we're not necessarily looking at some of those, um, you know, brand or campaign level kind of AIs that allow you to create a, a whole bunch of templates. Um, but it seems like written content is, is the largest thing that's happening right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. For real applicable use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes to that goes to code too, Matt. So I just want to throw that in there, like actual programming yeah. code that goes live in websites. So yeah, I, I know one or two of our developers they've started to use ChatGPT to generate code for them, which is quite, I find quite funny. Yeah, <laughs> and, and what was fascinating, I mean, obviously they still need to understand the code. My uh, my friend who was a copywriter still needs to understand: is this copyright? Is it good? It still needs that Correct. human interaction, right? Um, but the interesting thing, because when I was talking to my talking to Beth, the copywriter friend, at first you kind of go, "Well, ChatGPT is going to take over my job. It's, people aren't going to need me." And I'm like, "Well, no, no, not yet, not quite." Um, and actually, what I think you can do is probably put your fees up quite a bit um, for what you were charging by throwing the fact in there that you're going to use ChatGPT, and actually you're now prompt engineering to get the best out of it. Right. Right. Um, because that's a higher skill set, I think, because there are fewer and fewer people who who know how to write the prompts, it seems, for AI to get the stuff out of it. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating one, this whole world of where do you think it's going to go to? Because like, you've now got Elon Musk coming out and saying, oh, we need to stop everything and throw, slam the brakes on. Um, where do you think it's all going to go to? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, right? He he wants to write his own thing, and he's also promoting putting the brakes on everybody else's. <laughs> interesting. Um, <laughs> Elon but Musk it, for president. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, where is it going to go? It's ra it's so rapidly advancing, right? Like, mm. I do think I do think prompt engineering is going to be an actual skill, mm -hmm. probably an actual job. Right. Yeah. And you're not necessarily going to be able to be a good prompt engineer for production code, as well as be a good prompt engineer for written readable content mm -hmm. as well as like, right. Like this yeah. is almost like you're the director of a movie and you're yeah. trying to tell the entire crew what you want out of it. And some people are great at directing Westerns and other people mm -hmm. are great at directing sci-fi and some people do really well with documentaries, right? But you can't take a documentary director and say, all right, we're going to put you in this tentpole blockbuster. Uh, you're directing the fifth Avengers film, go. 
Like they're going to, they're going to fail at that. Right. So becoming a prompt engineer is going to be the job. And I think your education is going to have to shift in order to do that. Right. Like this is causing mm -hmm. unbelievable upheaval in school boards and mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff too. Oh my gosh, my students are cheating. What's going on? Like, how is this going to happen? Stop that. Like stop it now and start teaching them how to be prompt engineers and start yeah. teaching them how to be subject matter experts, mm -hmm. because regardless of, of whatever happens, you are going to have to be a subject matter expert to be good at being a prompt engineer. Yeah. Can you use AI to help you become a subject matter expert? You bet you can, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can go do research like we were talking about, but again, it goes down to prompts. So yeah. teach people how to use it versus being afraid of it and thinking it's going to steal and plagiarize everything, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. teach them how to be good, curious, inquisitive humans that find a passion around something and then turn that passion into becoming somebody who can write fantastic prompts and direct these tools to your advantage. So yeah. that's what I would say. That's such a powerful point, Matt. And I think it's very well said. And um, I'm smiling because I remember, you know, when I was back at school uh, and they just invented electricity, um, they were, <laughs> they were, they were like, well, you know, you, you, you've got calculators now. We had scientific calculators. And I remember when the first calculators came out that could draw graphs. And they're like, yeah. oh, well, you can't take those into the exam because you have to figure out how to draw the graph for yourself. And it's, I think, education, when it, when it realizes this is where technology is, how do we help our kids utilize the technology to be smarter rather than try and stop them? Um, right. Because they're kids. I mean, <laughs> you know, adults are using it all the time to make their life easier. And we expect our kids to go, well, I can't do that. That's just not right for my exams. <laughs> it's just this ludicrous isn't it really in a lot of ways yeah so uh it's fascinating fascinating so you've got um let's just i'm curious uh, in the in the last few minutes of the show uh Matt, yeah. if i can dig into i did look at your um website which is nimblegravity.com and i was really curious by this phrase data science which i is quite a generic phrase but you use it in quite a specific way in the sort of the the junction of the three circles um mm -hmm. what, what do they call that graph uh, this a, is a Venn diagram. Uh, yeah, this is where I, I should have paid more attention in maths rather than looking at the, 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 the sine wave on the calculator. Uh, the Venn yep. diagram. So just explain that. And how did you come up with this? Yeah, so, you know, it, we talk about pragmatic data science, right? And that's, you know, understanding what you're trying to do from a, a general business hypothesis. What can you do to test quickly, to be iterative, to, you know, extract something in a very short period of time to then be intelligent about that and move on from there, from whatever you learned and create the next phase and, and you know, kind of creating this iterative cycle, just yeah. like you would in an agile programming environment, right? But doing it with data science tests and projects and moving quickly and, and forward and uh, iteratively. And, you know, the Venn diagram that you're referring to on, on the site kind of shows, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, math in one circle. It talks about technology in another and then, you know, brings in business and industry acumen into the other. And, you know, that's subject matter expertise. Right. Mm. And then that center overlapping area is where data science actually happens. Right. So you're, you're taking 
the knowledge of the folks within the industry, within the business and their, their specialized subject matter expertise over years, right? And you're combining that with technologies that allow you to move and analyze huge, large quantities of data. And then you're applying, you know, uh, mathematics, uh, algorithms and equations with machine learning and AI on top of that and, and bringing it all together into, into the world of data science. And then you're able to output insights from an organization through their data that they might not have, have really seen before, right? Mm-hmm. Like they might have had gut feelings that, you know, the, the long-term employees that, that really understood the business in, in total might have been expressing these things, but you can actually put out the goals and the percentages and, and these kinds of things. You can do creation of propensity models. How likely is a customer going to be to buy from us? How likely are they going to be able to buy a second time? You can output, you know, actual um, modeling around, uh, you know, people who interact with your business and footfalls and what's going on there, any number mm-hmm. of things really. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. You can take alternative data sets and understand, um, you know, what are, what are people doing in their day, right. Mm-hmm. From foot traffic and stores and, you know, where else are they going, um, that we might be able to, you know, modify our marketing messaging and placement in order to capture these people. And you can unlock these kinds of super interesting approaches to interacting with your customers that you probably wouldn't have done through traditional tools. Mm. That's really interesting, isn't it? And I, I, I I get sucked into it, Matt. I do because you just get drawn into all the, all the, all the possibilities that this sort of technology and thinking now brings to you really and the, and the possibilities yeah. that are out there. I guess one thing um, that sort of springs to mind in all this is it sounds expensive and complex. So if I'm just starting out in e-commerce, um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on this because obviously you're dealing with companies doing billion dollar turnovers. And so it's kind of like mm-hmm. if you're starting out and you're sitting there and you're listening to people going, well, we can, you know, do this data and, and, all, and all these sort of propensity models and all that sort of wonderful stuff. But you're like, dude, I've got like a thousand people coming to my website a year at the moment of which 15 are buying and I'm trying to build the business. I think it, it feels, I think it can feel quite overwhelming for a startup, do you know what I mean? An entrepreneur to think, oh, I've got to have this, yeah. I've got to have this, I've got to have this, and, and, and all these tools that the big guys have got, how am I even going to compete? And I wonder what your thoughts were on that, because it, I mean, in some respects, it's not actually a million miles away from the guy that's starting up right now, but I, I can understand that it, it feels like a massive world out there. And so I just wonder what your, your thoughts were on that for the little guy. Yeah, so a couple things that I'll say around that. There's a lot of platforms that have been, that are data science platforms that have been productized, right? That allow you to do things like um, price testing and creating Mm -hmm. pricing models, right? And so as a smaller guy or gal running a business, right? um, You don't necessarily have to um, have a huge data science budget and hire a bunch of people and, you know, have this massive team or go to an agency and have them do that on your behalf. Right. You can utilize some of these, these tools that are out there uh, and 
you know, like the pricing model that I'm talking about, um, there's a platform called Intelligems uh, that, you know, we've been talking with and mm. uh, they do this, right? And um, there, there's some interesting things out there like that. But here's the other one, right? Like being a data scientist, I would argue, right? Like I think we think of it as folks who are, they have math degrees, they have computer science degrees, they're working, you know, with huge data sets and environments like Snowflake or whatever. And right, like those people are professionally labeled as data scientists, mm -hmm. but a true data scientist is somebody who is curious, who's willing to test and experiment and try things and create a hypothesis and go out and execute against that and see what the results were and then come back and iterate on that, right? Yeah. And you know where you can do that? Excel and mm -hmm. Google Sheets, right? Like on the low, low end of things. Uh, you can go back and do regression studies in Excel. And there are a thousand tutorials on the internet about how to do this. It's built mm -hmm. into Excel. You can understand what happened with your data in the past through a regression test. And you can even compare this to data sets that are freely available from say the government, right? Mm. Uh, I did this back in, oh gosh, I want to say it was 2008 with uh, a couple super smart business analysts. They were data scientists, but at that point in time, they were called business analysts. Um, <laughs> and you, you know, we did the, the bulk of it um, in, in Excel mm. and what we found at, at this point in time is we were doing a regression analysis of appliance sales uh, and comparing that to housing starts, uh, which are available government metric here in the United States that you can download for free off of, uh, off of government websites. And we were looking to understand um, how the correlation between housing starts in the areas we, we looked at met up with appliance sales, right? Like that right. makes sense. You're building a yeah. new house. You've got to build, you know, you got to buy appliances. What's the gap, right? Like that's really what mm. we wanted to understand and, and know when we should really be going to market and talking to contractors and, and trying to, mm. to land large sales deals. And that's a hundred percent doable in Excel. Right. And I wow. think it's more, go figure out what your hypothesis is and mm -hmm. then figure out the environment that you, you know, kind of need to utilize in order to do that and get yourself, you know, somebody curious and, and smart and good with manipulating data in multiple types of platforms and places. Mm -hmm. That's top advice. So start small, just start doing it, I think, um, totally. because e-commerce is both art and science, right? It's not, and you, the, the sooner you can get your head around understanding some of these things, the better, I think. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and if Excel can help you and Google Sheets can help you, have at it. I mean, I've spent yep. many an hour in a Google spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> that should almost be a T-shirt slogan. Um, <laughs> listen, uh, Matt, I'm aware of time, man, and, and I feel like we're just starting to scratch the surface. So let me ask you one final question, if I may. Yeah. So you're a data scientist. You've got this company which is helping, you know, all manner of different size organizations. You've seen a lot. You've experienced a lot. What's the one opportunity you think that e-commerce entrepreneurs are not taking advantage of on the whole that they probably should be doing right now to have the biggest impact on their business from your point of view, from a data science point of view? What, what, do, you, what do you see in all of this? Oh, wow. Um... 
that's that's a great question and obviously a big challenge. And I think it's kind of one of those overwhelming things for for e-commerce folks. But I'm going to go back to a, a tried and true standard that I unfortunately don't see enough people executing well enough on a consistent basis, and that's A/B testing, right? Okay. And this is a surefire way to increase the outputs of your e-commerce operation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, sometimes that requires a, a good amount of traffic, uh, and, and you need you know a certain number of, of visits uh, per year to utilize platforms that are going to do that. And I think that that's where people get a little bit scared too, from an A/B testing perspective. Mm-hmm. So if you can utilize a platform, if your website has enough traffic uh, in order to be able to to really get impact uh, from an A-B testing platform, uh, 100% you should be doing it. Yeah. You should have a team around it. You should be working iteratively. You should be you know studying the results and pushing live new features and functionality and layouts and user flows all year long. Like do as yeah. many tests as you can. If your traffic isn't large enough to support a platform like, you know, an Optimizely, a Convert.com, whatever it might be, uh, I'm going to go lo-fi again, right? And just be like, be brave, start, Mm -hmm. track what you're doing, like, you know, write it down somewhere, put it in Jira, put it back into Excel or a Google sheet of, Mm -hmm. you know, this is my theory, here's my test, I launched it on this. And go watch your Google Analytics or your free yeah. analytics platform, right? Change change some colors. Add a second checkout button above the you know the the product, not just down below. Where you know whatever it might be, and go watch your analytics. And did you increase things? Mm-hmm. Great, keep it live. Did things stay flat? Great, keep it live. Mm-hmm. Did you negatively impact things? Okay, maybe go back and, and take that out, right? And see if that thing that you did was the actual cause of the negative impact. Yeah. If if you rebound or things stay low or whatever, maybe it wasn't, right? Like you can go lo-fi on your science and and kind of like just just test and iterate. And in that scenario, I wouldn't be doing a whole bunch of tests, but I'd be mm-hmm. doing some tests and I'd be yeah. being brave about it. Yeah, no, it's very good. Very good. I, I love that, especially your product page. Um, I don't feel like people product test, uh, split test their product page enough. And you can run different ads to different versions of your product page. You know, you can, there's totally all, all kinds of ways to play around with that and, and definitely do that and get involved with it. Um, yeah. uh, I, 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 I like that. I like the simplicity of that, Matt. Not going to lie. I was kind of expecting you to say something in AI, but actually going back to split testing makes an awful lot of sense. And then, as you were talking, I'm going, that's, that's actually the right answer. Uh, I, I thought that was uh, very well said, sir. Very well said. Thank so, you. So, oh, no, listen, um, Matt, listen, how do people reach you? How do they get a hold of you if they want to connect with you guys, ask you some more questions? What's the best way to do that? 
Yeah, it, you, you already mentioned the website, nimblegravity.com. So that's definitely a great way to, to get a hold of us. The other easiest place, right, is LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to, to reach out to the company or follow us there or reach out to me directly. Uh, I'm on there, Matt Ranta, uh, and happy to connect with folks and chat with them about any of their e-commerce, digital AI challenges, whatever it might be. Fantastic. Absolutely. Do, do go connect with Matt on LinkedIn. I need to check to see if we are LinkedIn. LinkedIn, link, linked on LinkedIn. I know it's not easy to say connected <laughs> on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we should definitely do that. Listen, we will, of course, link to Matt's info in the show notes, which you can get along for free, along with the transcript at ecommercepodcast.net, or it will be winging its way into your inbox if you've signed up for our newsletter. Matt, listen, genuinely really appreciated the conversation. I'm loving this stuff right now. Um, and I said at the start, the show sponsored by the e-commerce cohort, which it is. And in the cohort, which is our sort of monthly mastermind group, uh, we've just done a whole thing. I run, I, I do this thing on, on ChatGPT on how to start an e-commerce business, how to use ChatGPT to come up with the name of the company, the products that we're going to sell, what's going to differentiate it, how we do customer research, how we write product copy. We had a, we had a bit of a laugh actually with nice. that. And so... <laughs> Um, yeah, if this is something which has perked your interest, dear listener, do check out ecommercecohort.com. There is like a, a sort of a free trace of ice, like a dollar trial, I think, or something like that. Check it out uh, on the on the, the chat thing that we do. It was great fun, actually. But Matt, genuinely appreciate it. Love this stuff. Love learning lots of stuff about AI. I think it's a really interesting thing. So thank you so much for joining me, man. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. Really enjoyed it. No, it's been great. Great. So thanks again to Matt. And also, again, a big shout out to today's show sponsor, the e-commerce cohort. Uh, the free training is at ecommercecycles.com that I mentioned. And if you want to check out more about the uh, chat GPT training that we did, that's at ecommercecohort.com. A lot of domains, but they're all linked on the website. Now, be sure to follow the e-commerce podcast wherever you get your podcasts from, because we've got yet more great conversations lined up and we don't want you to miss any of them. And before we wrap up today's episode, let me take a little moment to invite you to become a part of the show. Now, if you're an e-commerce entrepreneur or an expert and would like to share your insights with our audience, we would love to hear from you. Or maybe you just know someone who would make a great guest. Do send them our way. Just head over to the website ecommercepodcast.net and get in touch with us. All the information is on there. And in case no one has told you yet today, you are awesome. Yes, you are. Created awesome. It's just a burden you have to bear. I have to bear it. The other Matt has to bear it, and just about every Matt on the planet has to bear it. And if your name's not Matt, you've also got to bear it as well. Now, the e-commerce podcast is produced by Orient Media. You can find our entire archive of episodes on your favorite podcast app. The team that makes this show possible is Salaf Bainon, Estella Robin, and Tanya Hutzelak. Our theme song was written by Josh Edmondson. And as I mentioned, if you would like to read the transcript or show notes, head over to the website ecommercepodcast.com. Net, uh, where you can also sign up for our weekly newsletter and get all of this good stuff direct to your inbox. That's it from me. That's it from Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a fantastic week wherever you are in the world. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>